Okay, justification. We almost finished last week, but we didn't quite finish, so let's see if we can uh, wrap it up and then go on to adoption. So here is the schedule. Last week we talked about justification. This Today, adoption or becoming members of God's family. Next week, sanctification. Probably two parts. That's the whole of growth in, in holiness in the Christian life. Big topic. Then I'll take some time to talk about this controversial issue of baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is that? And then perseverance of the saints or remaining a Christian. Can you lose your salvation? What can you have as evidence of assurance of salvation? That'll be on the perseverance of the saints. So that's the, those are the topics as we go forward. Now, this is all in the general topic, the broad category of the order of salvation, the order of events that uh, God plans and brings about with respect to us regarding um, our salvation, starting back before the world was made, before the creation of the world, before there was anything in eternity past, God choosing you individually, personally, that you would be his son or his daughter, and that's the doctrine of election. And then the gospel call, or the message of the gospel, that we have sinned and that salvation is possible through trusting in Christ. But we can't respond to it because we're spiritually dead. So, in many cases, including the cases of all of you that I see here who are believers in Jesus Christ, along with the gospel call came the power of the Holy Spirit to give us regeneration, to make us spiritually alive and able to respond. And then, in fact, we did respond in conversion or faith and repentance, turning from our sins and in faith, uh, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Immediately following conversion then, as a result of our faith, is justification. Justification. And this was last week. Then we're going to finish up that and begin to talk about adoption today. Um, and then in the next few weeks, sanctification, perseverance, death and glorification. All these benefits that come to us as God works in various rich and wonderful ways in our lives to bring us all these blessings of salvation. This set of events is generally called becoming a Christian. And I could, I could put the first part of sanctification up there too. I'll get to that um, in a week or two. Justification, then last week, review. It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And then he declares that that's true. He declares us righteous in his sight. Justification includes a legal declaration. This is not the outline that you have in front of you. This is last week's outline that I hope you brought back, but there was just a tail end of it, and so I didn't make more for today. Or did we, have, we didn't have any extras for today. I didn't. I, I, uh, I did the last part. You, you did. I didn't give it to you. Oh, you didn't give it to me, but everybody else has it? Well, they should. They should. Okay, good. <laughs> all right, well, someplace on all those papers you should find this. Uh, no, this is a review. Not, not, not all of it, just the last part. Okay, thanks, Garth. He's ahead of, Garth is ahead of me. Okay, it's a legal declaration by God. He declares us righteous. We talked about verses that that word is used when God de declares us righteous. He justifies the ungodly. He declares us to be just in his sight. He declares we have no penalty to pay for sin. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought last week, after we left and went home, I thought, how? How can I just make the momentous importance of this doctrine more clear to everybody? And I thought, try this. 
stand before God. No, wait a minute. Close your eyes. Imagine you stand before God, and imagine he says your name, and then he says, you are guilty for eternity. Case dismissed. What would that feel like? It would be the most horrible thing you can imagine, because there's no appeal. It's over. If he were to declare us guilty before him for all eternity, it would, just, it would lead to tremendous despair and agony, and there would be no hope. Then, then, you close your eyes, and you hear this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you hear God's voice calling your name and saying, your name, and then, not guilty, but righteous for all eternity. Oh, can you see the importance of this doctrine? It's the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the whole, the whole teaching of salvation is justification. And that's why it is so important that we get it right, that we understand it, and that we stand against distortions or misunderstandings of it. How does it come to us? It does not come to people who work for it. Romans 4, 6-8, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. It's not by our own obedience. Blessed are those whose lawless debts are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. But forgiveness is only one part of justification. It makes us morally neutral, but doesn't give us favor with God. So we said that God also imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That is, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness on account of his faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, Christ became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became counted as sinful so that we might become counted as righteous before God. Philippians 3.9, Paul wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, like he as a Jewish rabbi could work and obey all the laws and the rules and try to earn it. He couldn't do it. It, was just, it just brought frustration and failure. He wouldn't have a righteousness of his own in Christ, but rather the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you can think of God as saying to you, not only not guilty, but also righteous. It's like Christ's righteousness. The whole record of his obedience all his life is thrown over you like a garment to cover you, and God looks at you and sees a perfect record of obedience. So Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now there's some people who deny that today. That's why I wanted to go back and emphasize it again just before we got to that point. Traditional Roman Catholic view last week, we talked about justification in Roman Catholicism. Here we differ with our Roman Catholic friends. It's there, They think it's something that changes us internally, makes us gradually and gradually better until we die, but we're not perfect, so we're still not completely justified. After we die, we have to go through purgatory and be more and more purged from our sins, purified from sins, made more. And finally, at the end of purgatory, then you're completely morally righteous, and then on the basis of who you are inside, God says you're righteous. You don't know how long that's going to take. 
That's not a situation of being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's not based then on just God declaring you to have this righteousness that's not your own. It's rather God making it happen inside of you. And we differed with that um, because uh, the Bible emphasizes that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. It's by grace, that's undeserved favor, that you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So it's through faith, through faith in Christ Jesus. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. That's the clear sequence in the Bible. We believe, and then on the basis of that belief, God declares us righteous. We've been justified by faith, Romans 5.1. Why faith? Faith is the opposite of depending on ourselves. Paul says, Romans 4.16, it depends on faith in order that it may rest on grace. Because Faith is the thing that's not meritorious. It's not our own effort. It's giving up, saying, God, I trust you. Now, that's where we ended last week. What about then James 2, 18 to 26? This is the verse that, or the passage that people wonder about when they say, well, Paul teaches again and again, justification by faith alone, by faith alone. How then can James say a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? So I'll read the passage, James 2, 18 to 26. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Show you my faith by my works. It's in the context of showing evidence of faith. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So he's saying there's a kind of belief that's just intellectual agreement or intellectual assent. It's not genuine trust. Even the demons have that kind of faith. But you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham... Now, now, here's the problem. Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now we're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isaac, when the Bible talks about Abraham being justified by faith, it goes back to Rome, these situations with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and again in 17, God re renewed his promises and Abraham trusted God. This long before Isaac was born. He had to wait years. Till Isaac was born, and then Isaac grew up, and then start, you know, became a, I don't know, maybe a late adolescence, uh, early teen when he was offered, uh, when Abraham offered him on the altar. So we're talking a period of many, many years after Paul says Abraham was justified by faith, believing a promise to come that he would have a son. So James is talking about something else. He was justified by works when? Not when he believed God. And his promise, but when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So now James is saying, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that said, now he's saying, now he's going back to the earlier scripture, he's saying, but now it was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's going on here? I think what is going on is that James is... You know how when you get in a misunderstanding with your wife, you're often talking about the same thing but different words? Yes, says John. John uh, Wiederquist in the front row is helping me out here. Yes. You, well, you thought, you thought you meant something, and she thought you meant something else with the same word. Yeah, no, of course, that never happens with Margaret and me. <laughs> yes, of course it does. Where's Margaret? She's over here today. Okay. It does. And then you say, oh, did you mean that? No, I didn't mean that. This is what I, oh, okay, then it straightens out, right? And that's what's happening with James. 
he's using the word justified in another meaning. And it's a meaning that's also in the Greek dictionaries. It's a meaning that's evidenced in other verses. And it's not declared to be righteous, but it's shown to be righteous or giving evidence of being righteous. So here, James is using justified to mean demonstrate or show to be righteous, not declare to be righteous. And there are some other examples of the word used that way too, the Greek word dikaiao. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That is, um, um, you, you try to show yourselves to be righteous before men, but God shows your heart. See, they're trying to give all these outward evidences. Or here's another one, Luke 10, 28 to 29. This lawyer, what shall I do to be saved? And Jesus told him the commandments. And Jesus said, you will answer this correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, what was he doing? He was trying to show that he was righteous. He was trying to give evidence, okay? Desiring to show himself to be righteous, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So uh, in that sense, that is the context of James 2. Abraham, our father, was justified by faith when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. This is later in Abraham's life, long after God justified Abraham once for all, reckoning righteousness to him as a result of his faith in God. The meaning then is shown to be righteous. And so that makes sense if we go back you see that a person is shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone. How was that with Abraham? Well, he was shown to be righteous by his willingness to offer Isaac on the altar. He was showing that God had done a genuine work inside him and it had changed him. So he was completely obedient to God. So I don't think this is contradictory to Paul at all. It's just using a word in a different sense. And James's larger concern is to show that mere intellectual agreement with the gospel is a, quote, faith that is no faith at all. He's not denying Paul's clear teaching that a declaration of right legal standing before God is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. James is affirming a different truth, that an outward showing that one is righteous only occurs by our life, by our works, he calls it. It only occurs as we see evidence in a person's life. Um, and so the two truths are complementary. They're not contradictory. Do you want to ask about that before I go on? That's just, it's, it's just a question that often comes up on that doctrine. Is that, is that making sense? Okay. It's where, yeah, okay, Clyde, thank you. That's where Luther had his troubles with regard to James. He baffled, puzzled, how can this be? Because he saw justified by faith alone, justified by works. And, and he didn't ever want to kick James out of the canon, but he... he he struggled, you know, he said, I think he had the sense that it must be something different, but he wasn't, I don't know if he resolved, I don't know enough about the details of Luther, but there was a struggle there. But this, I think, is the right solution. And this is common now in the commentaries on James, that people understand it this way. So good. Yeah. Okay. So now, I want to say one other thing. I told you last week that I wanted to mention some recent challenges to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's not just coming from differences with historic Roman Catholicism. There's something else in the air or in the intellectual atmosphere out here or out there. It's called the, quote, new perspective on Paul. And um, it was first uh, promulgated in the late 1970s by a New Testament scholar, more liberal scholar named E.P. Sanders. And then it was reaffirmed with some modifications by a British New Testament scholar named James Dunn, D-U-N-N, -N, and then by an 
a largely evangelical scholar named N.T. Wright, and he's a Church of England New Testament scholar uh, uh, in England now and a prolific writer. And uh, he wrote a book called What St. Paul Really Said, and he's written a lot of other books. He churns them out fast. This new perspective, uh, now I hesitate to talk about it because every time somebody criticizes it, they say, oh, you didn't understand us correctly. Um, but it seems to me, and I'm, 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 you know, I hope that someone will correct me if I have misrepresented this, it seems to me from not extensive but some reading that I've done in this uh, teaching that there are three points that are trying to be made. The first point is that first century Judaism did not believe in works righteousness, that is you can earn your salvation by being good, but they believed in salvation by God's grace. Oh, really? And what's behind that, I think, is to get Christians to say, oh, don't be so negative about the Jewish people who rejected Jesus in the first century and who rejected Paul's gospel in the first century. Well, you know what? There really isn't that much difference. They believed in this salvation by grace, too. And they just thought that their works were kind of a way that they would show they were members of God's covenant community. My response to that is, Mostly, first century Judaism did believe in works righteousness, though there were mixed views, there were various views, it was a complex movement with many um, opinions and, and, and understandings there. But um, the question to my mind is, are we going to believe what Jesus and Paul said about the Jews who didn't trust in Christ for salvation? Paul says in Romans 10, brothers, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's his Jewish brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and in Paul's teaching, that's this gift of Christ's righteousness, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. That's works. That's evidence. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And there are other places in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees who, who, didn't, uh, who didn't trust in him, and in uh, the book of Galatians, where Paul is arguing strongly against adding any works to justification by faith alone, that it seems to me that Jesus and Paul said, yes, largely, first century Judaism thought you could make yourself right with God by works, by obedience. And um, in our ESV study Bible, which I continue to work on, still on track for publication in October, the notes on Galatians were written by Simon Gather Cole, a New Testament uh, uh, junior but very respected faculty member now at the University of Cambridge, a, re a really respected New Testament scholar. He wrote our notes on Galatians, and he is a strong opponent of this new perspective on Paul and a defender of the historic orthodox view of justification that I also hold. He wrote his dissertation on this topic under James Dunn, an advocate of this view. And so uh, uh, I think Gather Cole's research is correct. Um, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, Mark Seifred, a former student of mine, Don Carson, a former colleague of mine at Trinity. Carson, Seifred, and Peter O'Brien have a huge two-volume work called Justification and variegated nomism in the first century in first century Judaism. Well, it's about yeah, it's detailed. But again, they're arguing strongly against. They're saying, look, 
this new perspective doesn't have the right view on uh, first century Judaism. It did, in many parts, think you could earn your salvation. Number two, the second point on the new perspective is Christ's righteousness is not imputed to us. Oh, really? Where do you get righteousness then? Well, God looks forward into the future, and he sees, uh, you know, on the last day, you're going to be morally perfect, and he kind of gives you that judgment ahead of time. He, he counts you righteous on the basis of what you're going to be when he makes you perfect. Whoa, God thinks of us as righteous based on the future moral perfection that we ourselves will have, and thus in the end, God will declare us righteous on the basis of the whole life lived. That doesn't sound right, does it? John Piper just wrote a whole book arguing against this, uh, arguing against the new perspective on Paul, and he interacted a lot with N.T. Wright and uh, sent him a manuscript and got back pages and pages of objections, revised his manuscript, and the book came out, and I think it's having a good effect. But my, my response, Dr. Piper's response, and many other people's response is, when you guys come to interpret these passages on imputed righteousness, you make mush of them. Not much, but mush. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's God making Christ to be counted as guilty. Because of a, He's taking John and Kathy's sin, excuse me guys, but your sin, and he's counting it as belonging to Christ. He's taking Christ's righteousness and counting it as belonging to you. I just want to make it personal here. And um, so God made Christ to be sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in Christ we become the righteousness of God, that he gives us that gift of righteousness. In our study Bible now, we have a long note on this verse explaining what it means and what it doesn't mean, because it does teach, and the more you look at it in detail, the more it does teach that Christ's righteousness is what is given to us, because our sin was given to him. Philippians 3.9, Paul wants to have a righteousness not of his own that comes from the law. See, and that seems to contradict this idea that God justifies us on the basis of the whole life lived. No, Paul says it's not that. It's not a righteousness of my own based on the law. Even on into the future, no matter how far into the future I look and think of myself as being morally perfect someday, no, it's not that. It's not a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, my response, number one, is the New Testament doesn't agree with you if you hold that new perspective view that denies imputing Christ's righteousness. Response number two to that is it sounds dangerous to like salvation by our own works, doesn't it? God's going to justify you based on reckoning backward to you your future perfect life. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, I don't want to depend on <laughs> I don't want to depend on that. It hasn't happened yet. It just seems so unreal yet. And, and it isn't the basis on which I want, to, I want to have my I really want to have my salvation depending on Christ, not on what God's going to make me be. That's, then it's grace. Then it's really grace, it's not works. And number three, third point in new perspective, and the last point is justification does not have to do with legal declaration. All you people since Martin Luther and Calvin and the Reformation, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Augsburg Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Formula of Concord, and the thirty nine articles of the Church of England and the Baptist Faith and Message, all you, you're all wrong. You misunderstood justification. N.T. Wright finally figured it out. In spite of 400 years of, the, of all the best teachers and scholars and everything in the history of the church, he's got it right and everybody else had it wrong. 
Everybody else thought it had to do with legal standing before God. He said, oh, no, 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 no. It's just God says, you're in. You're a member of God's people. doesn't have to do with legal standing. Whoa, wait a minute. I need forgiveness, don't I? I don't want that verdict of condemnation. I want God to be declaring me not guilty. And, and the response to this, the response to N.T. Wright's new proposal is, justification word group, the Greek dikaios, dikaio, simply does not take that meaning. It doesn't mean declare somebody in, declare somebody part of a community. It just doesn't. It's not a, it's not a, word, it's not a def definition given in the lexicons, the dictionaries. And uh, Ligon, Ligon Duncan is... Uh, uh, pastor of a large church in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, also a uh, form, former full-time, now part-time professor of theology at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And he worked on this in his doctoral work uh, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. And uh, he has an extensive paper on this saying, this is just a misuse of the word. The word doesn't mean this. And the more you study it, the more it does. So, so this, is, this is a wrong perspective. This new perspective is not a good perspective, and it's, it's really tempting to tamper with the, um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, as I think it has been rightly understood since the Reformation in Protestantism. What's the appeal of this? Why are people believing this? Well, who knows? And it's hard to know, but I can suspect a couple of motives. One is it's always interesting to be creative and controversial and have some new ideas and everybody say, oh, wow, never thought of that before. But another thing I'm afraid is this. Don't be so negative about Jews who don't accept Christ. There really isn't that much difference. Okay? So, oh, now we can all get along. And Roman Catholics and Protestants, well, okay, let's not have that battle anymore. So all of a sudden the appeal is you don't have the offense that comes to other belief systems when you say, no, justification is not by works, it's not by what God does within us, it's by faith alone, through grace alone. And then everybody says, wait a minute, we can't agree with that. Well, N.T. Wright says, oh, well, we can all get along. And there's some appeal there, I think, to a culture that doesn't want to draw hard and fast distinctions and say that uh, some views are right and some views are wrong. So that's, that's my quick overview of a new perspective. I do not claim to be an expert on this. It's possible that I'm not exactly interpreting it correctly, but that's as, 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 as good a job as I can do up to this point without spending a huge amount of time on it. All right. Let's see. End of the doctrine of justification. Practical implications. This doctrine enables us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves righteous before God. This is a great blessing. The people say, what can I do to be saved? What can I do? I, I know I've got this guilt before God. How can I get rid of it? Justification says Christ offers you complete forgiveness. And in fact, the blessing of a record of perfect righteousness. Number two, it gives us confidence that God will never make us pay the penalty for our sins that have been forgiven on the basis of Christ's merits. And so, um, I don't know if it ever... If you ever think, oh, I messed up my life so badly in the past that God will never really bless me now. <laughs> or because of something wrong that I did in the past, God's going to keep kind of withholding blessing or punishing me this month and next month and next year. The doctrine of justification says, no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are completely forgiven. God is not going to ever 
take one ounce of punishment for our sins, all of which, the punishment for which all of it has been taken by Christ. That is wonderful. That means if I disobey God, yes, I have to fear that he will discipline me for my good, or if I sin, there may be, there, there, there may be ordinary consequences for sin in this life. If I, if I um, uh, what kind of example am I going to give? Well, if I break the law, I might go to jail. There's, there's consequences. I was going to give a traffic illustration, but I decided that's too controversial. So. Well, if I, if, I, if, I, if I go 100 miles an hour down the, the 101, I mean, I'm going I'm to get a fine. I'm going to pay a penalty. Um, so there may be consequences, but those don't, those don't hinder my eternal right legal standing before God. There are other consequences. They're serious. But I still have the status of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we all do fail, don't we? Even the Apostle James says we all stumble in many ways. We make mistakes. We have to pray for forgiveness of sins. But we are thankful that we still have the status of no condemnation. So God may discipline us for our good, and he will if we disobey. He may give us or, allow ordinary consequences, but he will never take vengeance on us for our sins. He'll never punish us out of wrath. He'll never punish us for the purpose of doing us harm. The discipline is always a parent's discipline for our good, not a judge or a um, civil government's punishment to harm us. It's the, it's the loving discipline of a father. Well, that's a great blessing. I mean, that just transforms our life, transforms the way we think of God. Number three, justification is the great central truth of the gospel. It should bring us great joy and peace before God. Okay? Comments or questions before we go on to adoption, which is less controversial Way in the back, Gene. Explained um, the use of justification by James. Are there translations that use that, uh, those words, demonstrating or evidence of salvation, or do they all stay with the word justification, and therefore it has to be explained? Good question, Gene. Do some translations? just change justification to shown to be righteous or given evidence of righteous. I don't think the more literal translations have done that. They've thought, we better let people figure out that the word has two meanings. And, and maybe there's a fear that if, if, if they translate it the other way, mm, it's an attempt to cover over the problems or something like that. I don't know. Um, my guess, my, I would have to look at things like the message or the new living, which tend to give more interpretation rather than just use word-for-word -word translation. I think a legitimate argument could be made that, that another term could be used there, um, or a footnote or something. We just left it just... Oh, the, the footnotes in the study Bible are going to clearly say this is uh, evidence. Yeah, Grant Osborne, my friend at Trinity, wrote those notes, and it's clearly saying this is shown to be righteous or given evidence of being righteous. Incidentally, there was a great sermon this morning by Pastor Jamie on Esther, and I was just thankful that our ESV study Bible notes do say the Jews acted only in self-defense. <laughs> so, yes, I agree. That's right. Okay, uh, back here. 
Yeah, I have a question. Um, at the judgment seat of Christ, believers will not have to, when we get to heaven, we're not going to have to account for any of our sins that we've uh, been forgiven for. Uh, so what exactly uh, are we going to be uh, judged on? Not the sins that we've done on earth, but we'll be judged. I'm kind of confused as what what's going to happen in heaven in terms of being judged our works that we did in terms of what we did for Christ because our sins have been forgiven and he's completely blotted yep. them out yep. so can you help me on this what are we looking at in heaven <laughs> I'm going to look at uh, uh, 2nd Corinthians where Paul says we must we must talking to Christians we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ it's 2nd Corinthians 3 Oops, wait a minute. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive good or ill according to what he has done in the body. I'm not finding it. Mm. It's got to be five then. Looking, looking. Oh yeah, it's 510. I'm sorry, I said three. 2 Corinthians 5.10, well, look at verse 9. Paul says, he's talking about being going to heaven, which he calls being away from the body and at home with the Lord, or, um, or being at home, uh, or, or being in the body. Uh, he's talking about dying or living. And he says, so then, whether we are at home, that's in heaven, or, I'm sorry, let me see away from the body and at home with the Lord, whether we are at home or away uh, from the body, well, it's whether he's in earth or heaven. We make it our aim to please him. Paul's saying, I try to please God every day, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Lord, how can I please you? Make it my aim to please him. Why? Because, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that we'll be judged whether we go to heaven or hell? No, it's not that. It's so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it's for rewards. It's to give us rewards for what we've done. It's just a, it's just a wonderful question because I think it's, a, it's an important factor in our life that when we live in obedience, walk in obedience to how God has called us to walk, we are, what Jesus says, storing up treasures in heaven. And he's going to say at the end, well done, good and faithful servant, and grant us rewards for the things that we have done in obedience to him, wherever he called us to live, or whatever he called us to do. I'm looking out and I'm seeing different walks of life, different areas of service for the Lord, some in church ministry, some in secular ministry, some in education, some in business, in, in, in many other areas. And I'm saying, okay, just be faithful, and God will give you reward on the last day. Um, but see, that, that should fill us with joy because I saw this, I know it was hard, you were faithful. I know your friend slandered you and, you turned, and she turned against you, but you loved her anyway, you were faithful. There's going to be reward. I know that it was difficult when you lost this job or lost this relationship, or, but you were faithful to me and here's your reward. I mean, I think those are just going to be times of great thanksgiving when we stand before the Lord and he says, Good job, good job, 
I'm thankful for this, reward, reward. I think that's a wonderful prospect. Okay? Yep. Over here, I forgot your name. Dolly. The microphone coming. What? Are we not accountable? Are we not accountable for every thought, word, and deed? Yeah, okay. So there's more. I've got to say more. See, I'm not <laughs> didn't give a full answer and you're holding me to account here. Um, how many of you have had a job review? Uh, somebody, oh, almost everybody in here has had a job review, okay. Or how many of you have gotten graded on a paper in school? 100% of you, okay. Now, how do you feel when you do a really sloppy job and you get 100%? It never happens, says E.G. <laughs> okay. um, if I've got, I just gave midterms a few days ago. And if, 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 if I gave an A to every student who got a midterm, the students who worked hard and got an A are going to think that's not fair. But you know what else? The students who didn't work hard and should have gotten a C, they're going to say, oh, I got an A, I got an A. But something in them is going to say, I didn't deserve that. We've got a sense of justice in us. And I think that our job evaluation or our performance review on the last day, there's going to be some also that says, Wayne, I gave you opportunity here to do this, and you dropped the ball. That won't be the kind of happiness that I have when, it's, when the Lord says, when you were faithful here, here's reward. But it'll be a kind of fairness, because God won't say that to me in anger. He'll say it, I think, with some sadness, and I'll, I'll have some sadness, but I, I don't want it to be swept under the rug. I want the Lord to say, you dropped the ball, it's forgiven can't give you a reward for that. And I'll say, I know, that's right. Mm -hmm. So, thanks, Dolly. Okay, that's, that's, there's, there's the rest of the story. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. There's, it, it should never, there should never be a fear of hell, punishment, eternal condemnation. I think we should have a fear of loss of reward, and just some sadness and disappointment, all covered by the blood of Christ, all forgiven. We're going to enter into heaven. But um, something in me says, yes, Lord, I, I want you to, I want to know that you saw that too, and you weren't pleased with it, but it's forgiven. Um, then it's all done, isn't it? Then it's, it's, then it's so... Yeah, I think we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But it's in the context of family members and a father who loves them, giving an evaluation that is absolutely fair and actually filled with grace. Oh, yeah, go ahead, over here. What's your name? I know, I've met you. What's your name? I'm visiting from Mississippi. What's your name? Jean Prather. Jean? Um, I see this as we take to heaven the relationship that we have built on earth. Mm -hmm. And we are rewarded based on, I can't, I can't gain a relationship with the Lord after I get to heaven. I build that through maturing here mm -hmm. on earth. Mm -hmm. Now my question is, because uh, that belief system is just there for me, 
in heaven if we have family members and friends and etc and we are rewarded at different levels is there a consciousness on the part of others in heaven that there are levels of reward y yes there is a con so my yes. husband who's been deceased for uh, 20 something years yes um, if I arrive and he has had greater rewards than me, he will know that? Yes. <laughs> That's not the answer yeah. I wanted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to tell the truth. Thanks, Gene. Yeah, I think, I mean. There, if that's true, then then there would be unhappiness. No. I think there'd be sense How of, do you cover that? The sense of fairness. Um, did you ever go to somebody's house? That's this huge house, and you say, oh, I'm glad for them, but that is not the house I want. It's not, not for me. Or did you ever think of somebody's job who has huge responsibilities, and you say, oh, I'm glad she's doing that or he's doing that, but it's not the job for me. I think there'll be something like that. There'll be a sense of everything's right, and we're happy because it's all right. Okay? I, um, I had this experience uh, a couple weeks ago. I told you I went to see my parents in Florida, and my brother and I, on the way back, had to change planes in Dallas. And there was an opportunity to get home earlier, uh, standby, on, a, on an earlier flight. And we jumped at it, and we got seats 31E and F, way next row to the back of the plane. You know. Other times, when I fly and sit in row 31E, center seat in the back, I think, oh, this is a crummy seat. You know, is okay. But we were so happy to get home. About an hour into the flight, I realized I was just sitting there with a big smile thinking, this is a wonderful seat. I got it. I, I made it. I got in. And I think that's how all of us are going to feel. Does that help? <laughs> Not that you're going to sit like this in heaven forever, but it, it wasn't first class, but I got there. So I was just happy. Neville? Thank you. Could you discuss the distinction between uh, the crowns that are laid up for us as opposed to the rewards? And when you talk about the crowns that are laid up for us, could you also address how we are going to lay them at the feet of Christ, I imagine, as a sense of our overwhelming joy? I'm not sure what to say more than what you just said. Um, um, there is one place where Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's in, I think, in 2 Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy or Titus. And um, so there's some sense of a crown of, that's just salvation. But I think also there are, crowns can be a symbol of reward or degree of reward. And uh, there's this parable, you've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. You'll have authority over five cities. Another person, you'll have authority over ten cities. And yet there is a picture of casting our crowns before the Lord. So if he gives us greater stewardship or responsibility or reward of some sort. The Bible is really vague on that. We don't know, but God knows us better than we 
know, ourselves, so it'll be something that will bring us joy. But I think our hearts will be pure and say, Lord, we owe this back to you. We're giving you just, uh, and maybe casting crowns is a picture of giving praise, but it could be a picture of offering our abilities and our whatever opportunities he gives us back to him for his service as well. So all, all, all of the above, all of the above is right. Yeah. So where are we? Well, uh, I'm not going to start adoption today because we got on to heavenly rewards, but I, I'm just... Susie? Wayne, thank you for sharing that this perspective on justification is not just a theological argument that's floating in circles, but it is so practical for mm -hmm. our everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it's just beautiful how that makes much of God and mm -hmm. doesn't play up our own righteousness. Could you address briefly that this new perspective on Paul, again, is not just floating in theological circles, but is actually making great inroads in some of the newer church movements. It is. And then maybe how we can discern um, some of those writings or teachings so that we don't fall into that and, yeah. and miss the, the richness here. Yeah, I get, I, get letters from, I get letters from pastors who say, oh, some of my younger staff members are reading N.T. Wright. And see, the problem with N.T. Wright is he's written some very conservative things. He's written some stout defenses of the literal resurrection of Christ, for instance, and um, some commentaries that are just really sound evangelical commentaries. But then he got into this adventurous mode, and um, he's, what is he now, the, the canon, which is the resident theological expert of Westminster Cathedral in London. That's a huge responsibility, really prominent in the Church of England. I think I have that title correct now. <clears throat> and um, and, um, and he, because he has been and known as a reliable evangelical, his books are having influence uh, among a lot of younger pastors and, and, and people. And I think that's one reason I bring it up. How do, you, how do you know what's going on? How do you know if people are falling into that? Well, one thing, if they deny that Christ righteousness is imputed to us. That's a real sure sign. Okay, and if they say that Judaism at the time of Christ was not earning salvation, it wasn't works righteousness, that's a sure sign, again. So watch out for those things. I'm trying to remember the title of John Piper's new book um, on, um, on this issue, published by Crossway. I don't have it. I don't have the, but it's but it's a really thorough answer to N.T. Wright. Um, why am I? The future of justification. Okay, good. Thanks. What's your name? Gene. Thank you. Okay, good. So that'd be a good book to have. Okay. Anything else? Because I have one special little treat at the end. I think we do one more question before the treat. The treat is a song. Okay. Um, now, uh, because Mike and Ev have Swedish visitors from Canada, what they didn't know is, and I didn't know until last night, is that I had chosen a hymn at the end that's a Swedish hymn called Children of the Heavenly Father, which I wonder if you don't know. Perhaps you do. So 
you don't know. Okay, well, it's a Swedish hymn anyway, in honor of my Swedish heritage as well as Norwegian. And um, but we've got to switch. Can we switch to the other file on adoption and go right to the end, Trent? And I'll tell you a little bit about. Do you know this? Children of the heavenly Father, safely in His bosom gather. How many people have heard that before? Okay, I think we've got enough to do. I'll tell you a little story about it. Um, Lina Sandelberg was born in a pastor's home in Sweden in 1832, quite sick in childhood, couldn't play outdoors very much. When she was 12, she fell ill and was paralyzed. Later, she recovered, but out of the experience came her first book of poems, published when she was only a teenager. She eventually wrote about 650 hymns, including uh, Day by Day and With Each Passing Moment and, um, and this one, Children of the Heavenly Father. I've sung this for years and it's a it's a wonderful wonderful song so um uh, and she wrote this she published this when she was 23 amazing so let's try this you want to stand up and sing let's pray lord jesus we thank you we thank you for this amazing wonderful incredible gift of righteousness not our own alien righteousness, righteousness that we did not earn, righteousness that you grant to us as a gift so that we may, like the Apostle Paul, be found in you, not having a righteousness of my own based on works of the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Lord, we do not deserve that. We are amazed at it. We stand before you and wonder at the wisdom of your salvation that that when you required perfection in order that we could live with you forever, that you provided a way, not only that our sins would be forgiven by Jesus, but perfection in a moral sense of a whole life righteously lived before you, that that would be earned for us by him so that we have access to your family, to your heaven, to your presence forever through what Christ has done. And then... Lord, also, we have this teaching of reward that satisfies our sense of justice and fairness. And we know that you do all things well. And on the last day, all will be right. And we will say it is fair and it is much more than fair. It is good and it is filled with grace. So we praise you. Amen. See you next week.